0: The headlines that hit us each day can feel so daunting, so looming. So we thought at Telos that a little bit more light to guide us might be just what we need. The Check-In is a weekly podcast with the Telos staff, reviewing headlines from the past week. We discuss current events through the lens of
1: what it means to be a peacemaker today. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Check-In. This is your host, David Kadabaugh. I'm checking in from Washington, D.C., and today is June 30th, 2021. This week on The Check-In, we're taking a break from our normal format to hear from author and expert Khaled al gindi Khaled is a senior fellow and director of the Program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. And he joined Greg for a conversation on recent developments in Israel-Palestine, particularly around Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Unfortunately, we lost Khaled to an unstable connection towards the end of the call, but Greg picks up right where he left off. We'll be back next week with the Talos team in a full episode covering headlines from Israel-Palestine and the U.S., but we hope you enjoy this special with Greg and Khaled.
0: Welcome, everyone, and especially to um, our esteemed guest, my good friend and one of the most brilliant commentators on the Middle East and American foreign policy there is Khaled El Gindi. Khaled El Gindi um, is the director of program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at uh, the Middle East Institute. He's a senior fellow there. Um, he's an author of a book which you all have to pick up and read immediately called "Blind Spot: American America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Um, and full disclosure, Khalid, I, I go way back. Uh, we both were advisors to the Palestinian leadership um, in Ramallah at the same time working on the negotiating te- team, including some of the leaders who we are going to be talking about today. So during this unusual episode of the, the weekly check-in when we don't have our whole team around, Things didn't stop happening in the world, and they didn't stop happening in Israel-Palestine. And something, um, something unique um, uh, is happening, which may, may bode to a turn of events that nobody can predict right now. And we really wanted to get the best insight we could, so we're really honored that you're here with us, Khaled. Um, and that unique event was um, the murder of a Palestinian dissident journalist, uh, Nizar Banat, um, who was beaten to death by Palestinian security forces, and subsequent um, clashes and uprisings of local Palestinians against the, Pal- not Israeli um, forces, but against the Palestinian leadership that many Palestinians see as absolutely corrupt and directly responsible for, for this murder. So we wanna get some, some insight into this. So first of all, welcome Khaled.
2: Well, thank you, Greg. It's good to be with you, and uh, I appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, it's certainly my honor and our guests, as they're about to find out. So let's go back to some basics because this can be like really complicated. Um, So President Abbas, President Mahmoud Abbas, he's the head of the Palestinian Authority, and he's also the chairman of the PLO. And like, you know, we don't want to get all into algebra here, but sometimes this complicates the story. So let's just get straight. Like, who is he? What's the Palestinian Authority? What's it responsible for? How does that relate to the PLO?
2: Yeah, it can be kind of confusing because Palestinians have, in essence, two political institutions um, that uh, represent their kind of political address. There is the Palestinian Authority and then there's the, the Palestine Liberation Organization or the PLO. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is the leader of both. The, 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 the lines between the two are sometimes blurred. Um, but very broadly the the PLO is the uh, umbrella organization that represents all Palestinians inside and outside of Palestine um, and is the political address internationally. It is the party that signs agreements with Israel, Um, that's the PLO and not the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is an administrative body that was created by the Oslo Accords in the 1990s to administer uh, those areas of the West Bank that Palestinians had limited, were, were, were granted by Israel kind of limited autonomy, uh, which is about 20% of the West Bank. And uh, in previously in the Gaza Strip, but of course, since the split with uh, Hamas. Uh, Hamas controls the Gaza Strip, whereas the Palestinian Authority controls um, uh, its area of jurisdiction in the West Bank. And um, as I said, Mahmoud Abbas is the leader of both the PA and the PLO.
0: Yeah, so Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, President Abbas, all these terms we hear about, this man who both of us actually personally advised, for uh, full full disclosure here, um, he's been in charge of the PA now um, since 2006, correct? Uh,
2: yeah, actually 2005 he was elected, um, and uh, he is now in his, uh, I guess, uh, what is that, 16th year of a four-year term, and um, But which is par for the course, given that Oslo is in the 28th year of a five-year interim period. So that's (laughs) kind of the norm in this process.
0: And so for anybody who missed the joke, it was a kind of funny, um, snarky joke. Oslo refers to the Oslo peace process that began in 1993. Remember Yasser Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin, President Clinton on the White House lawn, and that process, that peace process was supposed to end after five years with two states for two peoples, Israel and a Palestinian state. And now, obviously, we're well past 1993. So just as Oslo's five years term was extended, so has President Abbas's term been extended. But Khalid, like, tell me, Palestinians were recently supposed to have elections. And I know from my own family on the ground, People were really excited about these elections, not just for the PA, but with respect to the PLO, for at the local level, at the presidential level. There were more than a million new people who had registered Palestinians for the first time to vote. And then what happened?
2: President Abbas surprised everyone uh, back in December, I think it was, when he announced these elections. And he announced that elections would be held for the PLO's parliament, the Palestine National Council. For the, Pal- the PA's Parliament, the Palestinian Legislative Council, and for the presidency, they would be held in uh, in sequence um, at various stages in the summer, starting with the PLC elections in May, and then at the and you know as you said there was a lot of excitement there was you know several hundred uh, uh, candidates who who were registered and. I forget exactly how many lists, but dozens of electoral lists that were uh, planning to contest the elections. All the major parties had lists in addition to a number of of independent groups. Um, And at the very last minute, uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, basically pulled the plug and canceled those elections um, uh, just before they were uh, about to be held. And so there was already a lot of public frustration um, even before the current unrest, you know, and, and the, the both Abbas and the PA were quite unpopular, uh, frankly, for, for years. You know, if you look at the polling, Abbas's poll numbers are abysmal. I mean, I think consistently every poll has shown since, uh, from what I've seen since at least 2016, that about two-thirds of the Palestinian public uh, want him to resign. Um, that is, you know, that's before the current, you know, crisis with the killing of Nizar Banat and before the cancellation of elections. So his popularity right now is really at an all time low.
0: And you no, know, I mean, it's kind of this 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 counterpoint, though, kind of with what's been happening in Israel, where you have four elections in the space of two years and then this bizarre you know, enemy of my enemy coalition, but something moving forward and then this stalemate on on the Palestinian side. Now, you know, when when we were um, when we were living in Palestine and working on the negotiations, we went through, you know, the 2005 and the 2006 elections ourselves. And so, you know, um, can you give us I mean, some some insight, because there's there's one story to tell, um, and maybe that's the right story to tell today. But about you know a boss being this dictatorial, anti-democratic figure who's trying to maintain power. But it's that's that's not a, a complete like complete story. I, I think there are a number of external pressures happening for Palestinians regarding how and when they hold elections. Um, I'd love some insight into that.
2: Yeah, I mean the 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 full story is Mahmoud Abbas uh, didn't always you know he wasn't always the kind of paranoid, autocratic, intolerant ruler that he seems to have become now. Uh, There was a time, in fact, when he was viewed both by Palestinians and the international community as a reformer. Uh, He was, uh, for a time, uh, prime minister at the time that uh, he was the first prime minister, actually, when that post was created in 2003 uh, during the presidency of Yasser Arafat. Uh, and was seen as a kind of counterweight to Arafat uh, and his leadership, who were seen as sort of, you know, ossified and out of touch and undemocratic. And Mahmoud Abbas was, as prime minister, sort of leading the charge on internal reforms. Um, And uh, he's come a very long way since then. Um, He has essentially become everything that he used to criticize in, in Yasser Arafat.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there have been so many allegations over the years of corruption and uh, with benefits flowing to his immediate family and all of that. And um, it's it's such a sad situation. I do remember, though, um, during the 2006 election. So there are 2005 presidential elections, um, you know, in which uh, right after Arafat died and then Abbas became president and, of the PA and chairman of the PLO, these two different political organizations. And then um, 2006, they had legislative parliamentary elections like the Palestinian Congress. And in those elections, um, Hamas won. Um, and what was interesting about that, I think there were, there, there are two points there, and I, I think it's important to re- remember this um, today, is one, um, that um, Hamas's uh, participation was, in fact, encouraged by the U.S. And Other international observers. Nobody thought that they would win um, in the way that they did, and then two, Fatah, the party of Mahmoud Abbas, the predominant Palestinian party, was so convinced that they would win that they went into these districts all over the West Bank and Gaza Strip and run ran multiple candidates. Fatah candidates basically against each other because they thought there was no. So there, there was a level of incompetence and unwillingness under Abbas's Fatah party in those early days where he was unwilling to do the reforms necessary. Um, and so he used elections as a, as a means to sort of, you know, get rid of people from the Fatah movement that he didn't want in positions of leadership, but it really backfired. And So I think there, there are these two stories that are seated back there, and you might disagree with my analysis and please do, but one of sort of the international pressures on Palestinians to have elections in a particular way, and two, um, President Abbas's leadership and kind of like unwillingness to actually take steps to reform, which, which kind of backfired. And that leads us to where we are today, where the international community for many years didn't want elections for fear that Hamas would do better. So, you know, not to excuse anything that happened today, but there is this kind of complex backstory. I don't know how much of that you would agree with or push back on Khalid.
2: I mean, the, the picture that you painted of, of 2006 is exactly right. I mean, at the time, the, the, the Americans were pushing hard for a Palestinian election uh, because it was part of their freedom agenda and all of that. They were pushing for elections everywhere. Um, they since learned to regret that when the wrong people, quote unquote, were winning those elections, including in Palestine. Um, and and Abbas uh, was convinced, as you said, that that Fatah, his Fatah party, would come out ahead quite easily. Um, uh, they, even though, as you said, they were quite undisciplined, even running multiple candidates uh, in the same. Uh, same districts, and sort of undercutting each other. Um, and so Ham- Fatah might have won those elections if they had actually just been more disciplined. Uh, but uh, but again, I, I think this, this speaks to uh, the ossification of the party and sort of being out of touch with uh, their constituency. Um, and so, uh, you know, fast forward to 2021, Uh, And you have an even more out-of-touch leadership. And it is largely, I think, a result of those events in 2006, where even though they lost an election, they are still in power, um, in large part because the United States and the international community rejected the outcome of those elections because, as you said, Hamas won. Uh, and it won a pretty solid majority in the in the parliament, and so had the ability to form a government on its own. The U.S. and the European Union uh, boycotted uh, that government, uh, deprived it of, of funding, um, and as, you know, as you and I remember from being there, it was quite a difficult time uh, in economic terms and, and even in humanitarian terms in the West Bank when uh, it wasn't just you know. Gaza that was isolated, the West Bank was also isolated and uh, deprived of international uh, funding. So uh, that set up the situation for the split between Hamas and Fatah in 2007, Um, and and, uh, Hamas took over control of the Gaza Strip, and uh, Fatah continued to rule in the West Bank, or I should say to administer those parts that that were under its, you know, jurisdiction. Um, And so here we are today, 16 years later, uh, or 14, 15 years later, and the same people are in power and are even more detached from their constituency because there is no accountability. Uh, There's no price for losing an election. Um, The parliament doesn't function, so there's no oversight. There's no one to hold their feet to the fire and say, uh, we want you to explain uh, X, Y, Z and the national budget, or we want you to to account for the actions of the security forces. There's none of that um, because you have no functioning institutions with the exception of Mahmoud Abbas, who rules uh, by decree. And so it was because of that, that people got so excited about having Uh, an election, because you'd finally be able to get, as flawed as the process was going to be, you'd finally be able to get some uh, parliamentary oversight, some pushback on the powers of the presidency. uh, And now uh, we have none of that.
0: But we have somebody who was vocal on Facebook and arrested multiple times for Facebook posts, beaten to death in front of his family.
2: Yeah, and not just... Not just that. I mean, as you said, he was arrested multiple times, but he was also uh, harassed quite a bit. I mean, there were uh, thugs, uh, presumably loyalists to the president, who uh, would shoot at his home, you know, fire live ammunition at his home. Uh, it didn't deter him. I can remember uh, videos in which he would uh, that he would post on uh, on Facebook saying. Um, you know, this evening uh, they fired shots into my home. I have a small child who is just uh, 40 days old. This was, you know, obviously a few weeks ago. And um, he remained undeterred in speaking out against, uh, against the, the, the president and what he saw as a very corrupt system that he was running. And he paid with his life for that. Um, and, and this is a common pattern. It may not be everyone who gets their home shot at or is arrested or beaten, um, but there have been many, many arrests uh, of people for posting things on Facebook that are seen as critical of, uh, of Abbas's leadership. Um, there has been a, really the amount of space for dissent in Palestinian society has really narrowed over the past few years. And it's what we would expect. As uh, as uh, his unpopularity grows, he becomes more and more paranoid, more and more autocratic. Um, you know, purging uh, uh, any potential rivals, um, including from within his own Fatah party. One of the reasons that he canceled the elections is because uh, uh, Nasr al-Qudwa, who is a longtime uh Fatah leader and the nephew of Yasser Arafat had decided to uh, form his own list and that threatened the official Fatah list uh in the elections and uh part of that list was you know that list was going to be supported by Marwan Barouti who is uh, in prison right now um as one of the leaders of the of the intifada uh, 20 years ago um he's been imprisoned by Israel And um, he's actually uh, probably the most popular Palestinian leader alive, uh, even though he is currently in an Israeli prison. And so that really threatened uh, Abbas and his Fatah party. So he basically disowned him and uh, the prospect of this division within Fatah wasn't looking good for their electoral prospects, so so that's one of the reasons that led him to cancel the elections. Right.
0: Well, I know we only have a few minutes left, and this may be feel overwhelming and incredibly depressing for our listeners. I'll tell you, it's you know for for many Palestinians, this is you know they they feel it from every side. You know from. Um, the fact that they feel the international community has abandoned them, to obviously the conflict with Israel, to the, the exploitation and abandonment from um, other Arab states, to their own leadership, including both, uh, you know, Abbas, Fatah, and Hamas. And so, you know, the, the average people on the street, um, uh, the vast majority of Palestinians really feel um, particularly vulnerable and alone. And we saw that in the streets of our old hometown, Ramallah with um, thousands of people out pro- protesting in the streets, um, but being brutally um, brutally suppressed by uh, Palestinian Authority security forces, right?
2: Yeah, and I've just seen reports today that the Palestinian Authority has put in a request to Israel to allow more munitions and riot gear uh, into uh, the occupied territories for the use of the PA to, to help them You know, quash these protests, which is very, very disturbing development. Um, And it seems that they've not learned any lessons at all. Um, It it will, you know, that, the optics of that, uh, in addition to the reality of that, is I think really negative because it will only reinforce the perception on the street that the Palestinian Authority is a subcontractor for the Israeli occupation and that they are uh, doing the dirty work for Israel um, uh, by by suppressing their own people. Uh, So it's not going to win them any, uh, any support, for sure. Well,
0: I want to transition very briefly to one other important conversation just to mention today. Before we do that, I want to tell our listeners, so many who have been to Palestine. Um, this is a time to just send a note to your friends out there and to also amplify some of the voices of the incredible people on the ground that you've met, come to know, come to love, who are doing incredible work. They're, the context they're doing it in is really horrendous. But as we saw with the ceasefire, the fact that you all stood up and spoke up, two thousand, um, 2014, you know, uh, it took a hundred days and thousand 50 days rather and thousands dead before we got to ceasefire it was just sadly a few hundred lives but 10 days this time because more people were speaking up and we've seen this sea change of opinion in our communities so i want to encourage you that that feels bleak right now but send notes of hope donations whatever it is to the people you know amplify the stories that works there's no quick way out of this um, but there is another <laughs> difficult piece of news coming out of Jerusalem today. We heard a lot about Sheikh Jarrah and the forced removal of Palestinian, pending forced removal of Palestinians from their home in this Jerusalem neighborhood um, of seven families there. But this is coming to fruition today in Silwan for the establishment of an archaeological p- um, park. 1,500 people, if I'm not mistaken, are facing uh, forced displacement from their homes right now. Can you share more about that, Khaled?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a very complex situation both in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan, but but there are there are key uh, parts of those neighborhoods that have been uh, identified, really by settler groups and uh, with the collusion and support of the Israeli state and and all of its resources. Um, to to essentially take over um, uh, various parts of these neighborhoods in order to complete a ring of settlements around the old city. If you imagine, of course, the old city is the big prize in Jerusalem. It is the really the crown jewel of of Jerusalem, uh, and the the goal is to encircle. You know, most of that area around the old city is still overwhelmingly Palestinian. Um, even 54 years later. Uh, and so the radical settler groups uh, who are motivated...
0: Okay, we lost Khaled al-Gindi. Um, we may not be able to get him back, but he, what he was saying, and what I want you to know, and we'll close this conversation out, um, is that um, there is an uptick in Jerusalem of uh, these forced removals of people from people from their homes inspired by um, settler groups in combination with the Israeli government. Um, so this is similar to what we were seeing in Sheikh Shara. It's related um, and it's happening today. And a butcher shop was demolished yesterday. Nobody's been uh, forced from their home to yet what we know, but everything is, is in place to make that happen. This is a terrifying development um, for these particular families, for the city of Jerusalem. It does take our, our vigilance. I think, um, you know, we like to focus on the principles and practices of, of peacemaking. And one of the things to remember in moments like these when it's dark and it's complex and we don't have an easy way out is to come back to those principles. Even the first principle of peacemaking, which is growth, that change is always possible. It's always possible, even in moments like these. But it's only possible when we choose to pay attention and when we choose to act. And we may not have the resources, the skills, the ability to act in the way that we would want in a particular moment. We can't save people's homes from being demolished today necessarily. But we know that practicing peacemaking, listening to understand, holding competing truths in tension, owning our own agency and responsibility, self-interrogating and advocating, speaking up, sharing these stories. All of this is what has gotten us to a better world before and will get us to a better world now. So I ask you, even though this was a tough conversation to have, um, one thank you to Khaled, who's no longer on this particular podcast, but thank you to all of you. Um, Continue listening, continue learning, but speak out Share in ways that are appropriate um, on your social media or with your family, whatever works for you. But know that having these conversations matters. It saves lives. And one day, as our movement grows and we can finally hold power to account, we might actually be able to stop some of these demolitions in the future. Um, Just a hopeful thought. It's one that I absolutely believe. It's not pie in the sky. It's real. But thank you for tuning in. This is The First Step. See you next week.